All right, well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to be here. I haven't uh, gotten up this early in a long time. So 
Let me start by, by telling you a story that I think is, um, I, I, I love this story because it, it really sets kind of the, the context of what this topic is, is all about, especially from the perspective of a care provider, whether you're a physician, nurse, social worker, psychologist. So if you go back to the, to the, to the 1980s, there was a physician named Dr. Vincent Felitti, and at the time, he was a preventive medicine doc, and he was running, he was, he was the director of the weight loss clinic uh, out in San Diego. And this clinic, turns out, was actually really successful. They were, they were using a product kind of similar to SlimFast, and they were alternating that with periods of rapid, or, 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 of uh, intense fasting. And men and women were coming in, and they were losing weight. And not just that, they were actually able to keep it off for long periods of time. Uh, but over a period of five years, he, he picked up on this troubling trend, which he couldn't explain. About half the participants who came in over a span of five years left the program. And what sort of bothered him more was that most of the people who left the program actually were either losing weight or at their goal weight when they left. So, so why would people leave a program that was working for them, that was doing what it was designed to do? His mission was to get people to lose weight and keep it off. This program was doing that, but they were leaving. So why? Being the, the type A person that he is, he decided to interview as many of these people as he could. So he got to about 280 participants who left, and it was through one woman's story that he kind of stumbled upon an, an unexpected phenomenon. So while in this program, this woman went from being over 400 pounds down to 130, and then she left. Six, eight weeks later, she comes back, and she's already regained 40 pounds. And when he asked her what happened, she said that after she had lost all this weight, one day, a coworker made a pass at her. He sexually propositioned her. And this unwanted solicitation triggered these long, really buried memories of her own grandfather sexually abusing her when she was a young child for many years. It was in her youth, actually, that she began this pattern of overeating, binge eating, and gaining weight. And as it turns out, for this woman, as she gained more weight, it was her way of protecting herself or going unnoticed from other potential predators. Her, her weight gain, in, in a way, was actually a defense mechanism. It was a survival mechanism for her so that she was not a threat. She was not, she was not going to be victimized by any other potential predators going forward. And one quote that came out of not this conversation, but a separate one that sort of put together a theme was that overweight is overlooked. And that's the way I need to be. Dr. Felitti had never heard a patient describe anything like this before. So he went back to his team and said, we need to ask everybody about their history of abuse, but specifically sexual abuse uh, in their youth. And as it turns out, well over 50%, well over 50% had a history of sexual abuse in their youth. And so the, the key lesson here, the first lesson you could say for Dr. Felitti and his team, what, what allowed him to see sort of the forest for the trees was that what was seen by his team, by the entire, entire medical establishment as the problem was in fact for his patients, their solution just to a different problem that happened much earlier in their lives. And I gotta say, you know, uh, this is something that I never had been taught in med school, not in residency. It wasn't until the first time I heard about this topic that I kind of understood, wow, could people's behaviors, as ostensibly self-destructive as they may appear, could they be a solution to something else? 
So this is sort of the origin story, you could say, of what we call the, the uh, average childhood experiences, um, uh, of average childhood, ad child, adverse childhood experiences, what we call the hidden epidemic, because as it turns out, trauma is incredibly common, but we don't know that. We don't talk about it. We don't have a culture where we can talk about it openly, um, certainly in, in healthcare. So what I want to do in the next uh, 45 minutes or so is unpack just two things. One, I want to give you the data. I want to convince you that this is a real thing. What are average childhood experiences? What sort of health problems, physical, mental, social, are we talking about that are associated with average childhood experiences? And then secondly, kind of begin to talk about what we can do. And I, the second part is going to be a lot less than the first part. And, and the reason is the second part is I don't have much to say. It's but it's going to be incredibly hard. The solution is simple, but immensely, immensely difficult, and it's going to take a lot of culture change, and it's going to be um, a slow but necessary process for us to do, to do right by our patients in healthcare. So um, just a forewarning there. So the problem. Well, our story picks back up. So Dr. Bleedy knew that he was onto something that hadn't been described in the literature, so he decided he needed to study this more formally. And he went down to the CDC in Atlanta, teamed up with a guy named Robert Onda, uh, who actually graduated from Rush uh, Med School back in the day. Robert Onda is an epidemiologist working at the CDC, and together they became the, the co-principal investigators of what we call the Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs study for short. So this was a joint effort by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. This was published in the late 90s, actually in, in 1998. So it's 20 years old now. It's not exactly hot off the press, but we're still talking about it as if it's a new thing today. And what these guys did, what, what, his, what their team did was they surveyed over 17,000 adults in San Diego who were all insured. They surveyed 17,000 adults about their histories of 10 different categories of ACEs. These span three domains of abuse, neglect, and household stress. So they asked about physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in childhood before the age of 18. They asked about physical and emotional neglect. And they asked about five different types of stress that one could experience in the home. Substance use, mental illness in the family member, a relative or household member who's incarcerated, domestic violence against the mother, and then parental separation and divorce. Now, these are the 10 that they studied, but even when they published the paper, they were quick to admit that, no, these aren't the 10 types of trauma that exist in childhood. There are certainly a lot more that, that, that we experience, but these are the 10 that they were able to study as discrete units. Now the demographics of the study, I think are really important to understand um, because when we understand the demographics of a study like this, then we can begin to, to, to sort of interpret how can we apply what was learned from this study to other populations? Does it apply? Does it, it, is it valid to, to think across, across populations? So, the, the gender breakdown was roughly uh, 55, 45 women to men. 75% of the participants were white, followed by 11% Latino, Hispanic, 7% Asian, and 5% African American. This was mostly middle-aged groups, so about half the group uh, were 60 and older. And 75% of, again, these 17,000 adults had received some type of college education. So if we were to summarize who was studied in, in the mid-90s here, we're talking about a mostly white, middle-class, middle-aged, educated group. We're not, we're not talking about the, the group that was studied is not the patients that I tend to see at Cook County or I saw at Rush. These are 
these reflect really the people more in this room, more, more our colleagues and our family members. So, so this is not a problem that we can just put off to our patients or, or disadvantaged communities. This is a problem that, that should hit close to home because it, because it is. So since the original study came out, there's been uh, uh, hundreds of papers from this, from the, from the single adverse child experience study alone and, and thousands of papers on, on other studies that have, that have been developed uh, in the last 20 years. I want to condense, I wanna condense uh, all of the findings into three, three main points, if it's possible. The first one is this. Most people had one or more aids. And if you can think, at, at the time, nobody knew how common these types of events were. But when, when, they, when they analyzed, when they did the initial analysis of, of the survey data, they found that most people had one or more ACE, and if a person had one or more ACE, they, they tend to occur groups. So, so what do I mean by this? Well, what you see here is that 64% of a, again, mostly white, middle-class, middle-aged, and educated group had one or more ACE. On the flip side of that, you could say that only 36% had a childhood that was free of any adverse event. And, and the, story, the story is that when Robert Onda saw this number, when he first saw this number, he wept. He was overwhelmed. He, he thought that he was, he was gonna see maybe 25% of people had, had one of these events and more, but 64% of what you would call an affluent, uh, a, a very affluent participant group had experienced trauma. If a person had one ACE, they were about 90% likely to have a second one or more, and about 60% likely, uh, sorry, about 50% likely to have three or more. They, they tend to occur groups. So the second thing they found was, and this is what the entire study really hinges on, is that there was a dose-response relationship between the number of ACEs a person had and their risk of a wide array of poor health outcomes. Again, physical, emotional, and mental, social uh, adverse outcomes. And to do this, they, they generated what they called an ACE score. It ranges from zero to 10. Your score is zero if you've had none of these events. It's 10 if a person experience all 10 of them. And so most people obviously fall somewhere between that. Now, if you think about it, this is a crude measure of, to describe a person's experience growing up. This is a quantitative, again, it, 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 doesn't, it, it doesn't consider duration of trauma, perpetrators, uh, frequency, severity of trauma. If and, and you can see, you can imagine here that not all types of ACEs are, are gonna be weighted, are, are, are gonna be experienced in the same way. So even as crude of a measure as this, they were able to, to identify some, some striking associations. So here are some categories that, are, that were found to be, again, linked in a dose response way. When I say dose response, it means the more of the exposure is present, the higher likelihood, the higher risk of the, the subsequent outcome. Uh, and so here are some domains that, that were found to be linked in a dose response, dose dependent manner with, with adverse childhood experiences. So within health risk behaviors, ACEs are associated with smoking, current smoking, heavy drinking, drug use, and higher sexual behavior. Within mental health problems, ACEs are associated with depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, and a history of suicide attempts. Now you look at these first two categories and you say, okay, well, you know, that makes sense. Well, we know that people with a rough childhood tend to have higher rates of these, these types of things. But what really struck me is this third bucket, 
that aces are associated with, with chronic disease, things that happen in middle age stereotypically. Things like cardiovascular disease, COPD, which is chronic lung disease in adulthood, cancer, diabetes, and, 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 and a wide array of other uh, associated chronic diseases. Aces are also associated with uh, another bucket of other conditions like self, poor self-reported health, disability, and early mortality, which I'll show you in a second. But the things that are highlighted in red are among the top 10 leading causes of death. So we're not talking about conditions that, that, are, that have a low prevalence across the board. We're talking about the most common things that we see and treat in our clinics today. This is, it, this is one um, sort of picture. I, I don't have time to go through all of them, but sort of what the dose-dependent relationship, the dose-response relationship looks like between ACEs and a given health outcome, in this case, mental health. And what you can see is that the, the different color bars reflect different ACE scores, and I've clustered them into different mental health outcomes. And what you see here is that people with uh, higher ACE scores have a higher prevalence of that specific outcome compared to people with lower ACE scores who have a lower prevalence of that outcome. Now this doesn't give us any idea of risk, this is just uh, showing us the prevalence of an outcome uh, according to the corresponding ACE score. But when we think about what does the ACE score mean in terms of risk, uh, the next slide of slides show that. So here showing the risk of an outcome, and, and I know the, the print is small, but I'm gonna show you the slide in a second that has it bigger. Uh, this, the, the size of the circles are gonna correspond uh, to, to the risk of the, that outcome with the corresponding ACE score in the left. So this is our baseline, people with an ACE score of zero. As the ACE score increases, you can see that some of the circles start to get bigger to the, to the extent that when we're at an ACE score of four or greater, uh, it's, when we compare uh, individuals with an ACE score of four or more to those with an ACE score of zero, uh, some of these odds ratios, these risk ratios, are substantially higher uh, compared to people with, without ACEs. So here's a slide that shows sort of a summary of all the chronic diseases associated with ACEs. So the way that I would interpret this again, the odds of, of uh, the odds ratio for COPD, adult chronic lung disease, for a person with four or more ACEs compared to another with no ACEs is almost four, or a stroke to about two and a half. Ischemic heart disease, two. Any cancer, about two, and diabetes, 1.5. And again, you have to step back when you think about this, we're talking about chronic disease as a potential outcome. It looks like it's, a, it's an outcome of events, psychological events that happen in our youth. So what's happening here? This is a slide of my own research. I'll skip for now, I'll come back to it. One study modeled uh, this epidemiological uh, construct called population attributable risk, which simply is defined by the proportion of cases that would not occur if the exposure was eliminated. And in, in layman's terms, if we, that, that if we remove the stain of ACEs, how much of these outcomes in the circle could be eliminated if we prevented it? So if you look at anxiety, Right here, we could we could eliminate hypothetically over half the cases of anxiety that we see today if we prevented ACEs from happening. For other mental health problems, over 60%. For some of our most common chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease and cancer, about a quarter of each if we were to prevent ACEs from happening. Now, if 
But ACEs are associated with a wide array of, of poor health outcomes, and again, in a dose-dependent manner, then it would follow that they would be linked with early mortality. And this is the third main point that, that I want to share. After the uh, ACEs investigators, the original investigators, uh, developed the, their, their cohort of 17,000 patients, they followed these people 10 years forward, and what they found was that for those who, who had no ACEs, their average life expectancy was about 80 years. But for those with six or more, the average life expectancy went to 60 years, a difference of 20 years. Again, the measurable difference between these two groups being the number of traumatic events that happened in their childhood. Now, when you sort of stared at these categories of ACEs for a long time, one question, again, that I alluded to earlier that, that quickly comes up is, are there more than 10 categories? Are there more than 10 types of ACEs, and the answer is unequivocally yes, of course. And, and I like to, to describe this part with, with um, what we call the ACEs tree. So if you imagine a tree that's planted in the ground, the leaves and the branches here reflect the conventional ACEs that we just talked about, things that happen in the home, abuse, neglect, and household stress. Well, every tree needs roots to plant into the ground, and so we would call these roots adverse community environments. Systemic pressures like racism, joblessness, poverty, poverty which has some of the strongest links to adverse health outcomes that we know, uh, unaffordable housing and community violence. So again, these are adverse events in and of themselves, but they sometimes can, can be sort of this contextual scaffolding out of which ACEs can occur with higher frequency. Well, if we go one step further, roots draw minerals from soil, that, that the, the surrounding soil. And so what, what's the soil here? We, we call them adverse collective historical events, things that have happened in time that have conferred an intergenerational impact. So we're talking about slavery, mass incarceration, genocide, forced displacement. And while I don't have time to elaborate on here, uh, there's been some really interesting study within the field of epigenetics about how psychological trauma can actually be imprinted I wouldn't say imprinted, but can be passed down through our epigenome from generation to generation. So again, the first time I saw this topic, or heard about this topic, my first question as, as, a, um, as a young med student was, and I, I was a med student, I have to burp again. As a young resident was, how is this happening? What, what, there has to be some mechanism going on between ACEs and these health outcomes, or else we're looking at some other relationship. We're looking at some other confounded relationship here. And my first sort of gut instinct or my knee-jerk reaction was to say, well, ACEs are probably related to all these health outcomes through either health risk behaviors like smoking and heavy drinking, because we know those can affect our health, or mental illness like depression and anxiety or PTSD, which we also know can, can have uh, adverse consequences to our health. But the plot thickens. And there's one quote that I think sort of sets the stage uh, Sigmund Freud, before he got into his sort of fantasies, like id, ego, and all that, he was actually a very dedicated and committed psychotherapist. And, and he had worked with some very other accomplished psychotherapists back in the day. And, and one quote that, that I'm, I'm paraphrasing here that he sort of declared after seeing a patient was, I think this man is suffering from memory. And, and he, was spot, he was spot on. And so let me, let me elaborate here. So we all experience stress. Right? Stress is a normal normal part of life, it's, it's, stress can be resilience building, not all stress is bad for us. We were designed, our bodies were designed 
to respond to stress in a very quick way. So what I mean by that is if you were out in the woods and you saw a bear, all of a sudden, you know you have to react. You might not know how you react, but all of a sudden, you know that's a threat and your life is in danger, so you gotta do something to, to survive. And what we know, what happens physiologically, is that when we see a threat like a bear, an immediate threat, our sympathetic nervous system activates, stress hormones are released like cortisol, adrenaline, cytokines, and all of these sympathetic nervous system outputs occur. So our heart rate goes up, our, our bronchial, our lungs dilate so we can breathe oxygen in more efficiently, our, our muscles contract with higher efficiency and strength. When you're running from bear, you don't want to stop and pee or poop, so blood shunts away from that. These are survival mechanisms, but and inside of each one of us, provided that we don't have abnormalities in our sympathetic nervous system, these happen. Every one of us, if we see a bear or a physical threat, something that scares us, these happen inside our body. But the actual behavioral output differs. And what I mean by that is we can either fight the bear or decide to run from the bear, neither of which are very good options. But there's a third, there's a third response that actually is actually really common in children. Uh, and does anybody know what that is? Freeze, yeah, I heard someone whisper, yeah, freeze. So it turns out in children, their survival mechanism is to freeze. And another way to think about that is actually not just freeze, but check out, disassociate. So if you ever see that child, or you hear about the child in that classroom who just checks out, and, and who up until that point may have been a great student. For me as a pediatrician, I think, okay, what happened in this child's life? Like I said before, not all stress is bad. There's good types of stress. Uh, and, and what I heard in med school was like, step one, that's a good type of stress because you learn a lot and that's debatable, but you know, that, that could be seen, uh, considered as a, as a, as a for, formative type of stress. But you get the idea that not all stress is bad. Then there's a second category called tolerable stress. And this, by definition, is an unwanted event. So here, uh, causes of tolerable stress are the death of a loved one or a serious illness. It's a discrete event, and with enough social support and resilience uh, built around the person, they bend, but they don't break. But the third category of stress that, that we're talking about here is toxic stress. And toxic stress, by definition, is persistent, unpredictable, it's severe. It's a constant pressure on a person that we know now can, can change and affect our physiology. We know that from the early childhood years are critical for brain development. And toxic stress actually has profound effects on our brain. So this is just a model of what the neuronal network looks like from zero to two years. Uh, and what we're supposed to see, you can see here that we have some neurons uh, present in the brain in the newborn, and by two years, there's, there's supposed to be like hundreds of trillions of neurons in the brain. This is normal brain development. I have a three-year-old who, I, I don't know, some, I mean, he's supposed to have a brain that looks like that. Sometimes, not so sure. I love him. Um, I promise I love him. I promise you this. Um, but this is, no, this is normal, normal brain development, right? But given this, we also know that not every child has the same output. So this is a study that was done, I think, in the 80s and published in the 90s. Uh, 
through reach out and reach. So what you can see here is there, what we're looking at is cumulative vocabulary in children from about birth to, to three years. And what we see is that by three years, there are wide disparities of the number of words and quality of words that children are, know and are able to, to speak according to their parents' socioeconomic status. We see these differences as early as 18 months. What's going on here? Is it that parents who are on public aid love their children less? No way. What we're seeing here are the effects of poverty, systemic poverty. Toxic stress affects brain function. As I said before, that constant pressure that activates the fear response centers in our brain over time can have a profound effect on brain function. And so this is just a simple cross-sectional cut of an fMRI, which is a, 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 way, a, a type of MRI that allows us to see certain blood flow to certain regions of the brain. And where the circles are uh, highlighting are the temporal lobes, which are important for audiovisual sensory processing. And what you see on the left is uh, the brain of a, of a healthy child. And when they're given a stimulus, you see very vigorous activity um, in the temporal lobe. So red means that there's blood flow to that area, which implies function. But in the child uh, who's been abused, that same region with the same stimulus, we, we see much less activity in that part of the brain. And if we take this to an extreme, toxic stress can actually affect brain, not just brain function, but brain growth. So this is a CT scan of two three-year-old children. The one on the left was raised in a normal, healthy environment. And the one on the right was raised in the conditions of extreme neglect. And you can see the dramatic differences in size there. Toxic stress can affect the brain globally. But there's two areas that, we, that have been um, very well localized uh, that, have, that we know uh, are affected by toxic stress. One, the amygdala, which is our fight or flight, our fear response center, and our prefrontal cortex, which controls planning, empathy, reasoning and self-control. So what toxic stress does is causes overactivity of the amygdala, the part of our brain that's responsible to res res in re responding to fear. This is the part of, part of the brain when you're driving down Ogden and somebody cuts you off, you immediately react. You don't think, hmm, should I pause or should I, you know, this person didn't mean to cut me off. I, you know, I'm just gonna gently nudge, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna gently hit, hit this guy because, you know, or I'm, I, I'm not, no, your, your, your body, almost reacts without thinking, and this is when our amygdala is activated. Over time, especially in childhood, we know that persistent activity of the amygdala can downregulate or cause a negative feedback to the prefrontal cortex. Again, that area of our brain that's important for self-control, empathy, self-awareness, and planning for the future. So if, if the amygdala is overactive and it's it has negative feedback to the prefrontal cortex, and this occurs for long periods of time, there's an adage in, in neuroscience that neurons that fire together will wire together, but neurons that do not fire together will not wire together. So the prefrontal cortex development will be affected by persistent toxic stress. And this has real life implications for what we see in our cities. Research out of the crime lab at University of Chicago has found that when it comes to gun violence, there's a disturbing, this troubling, troubling pattern. And it tends to involve young men, there's some disagreement, an impulsive action with a gun around leading to a dead body. And I show you this because impulsivity is controlled by the part of the brain 
that is significantly affected by toxic stress. This is a systemic problem that we're seeing. And so if we put all this together in one sort of coherent model in the shape of a pyramid, we know that we're starting with, that the, there are factors at play that occur before a child is even born in the form of adverse collective historical experiences, adverse community environments. Then after birth, ACEs can occur. We know that ACEs disrupt neurodevelopment, uh, brain function, uh, which, and, and eventually brain growth. Disruptive neuro, neuro, a disruption, disruptions in neurodevelopment can lead to uh, adverse coping or adoption of health risk behavior. So this is the brain trying to self-soothe. This is the brain trying to calm itself down. As it turns out, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Khalidi is that it's hard to get enough, enough of something that almost works. As it turns out, we tend to choose behaviors. We, we tend to choose those coping mechanisms that are self-destructive because they work, but they almost work because they don't last. So a perfect example is smoking cigarettes. Before I knew about this topic, the way that I would counsel a patient is to say, are you, you know, are you pre-contemplation for quitting smoking? Are you in contemplation? Do you want to develop a plan? Right, that's the script that we are taught in med school. But after learning the science, what I'm thinking now is how does smoking, which has, so smoking has nicotine, contains nicotine, or cigarettes have nicotine, which is actually a decent but very short-term short antidepressant, and, an, and it's an anxiolytic. So now I'm asking, how does smoking help you? Which is a paradoxical question that, that I would have never been taught to ask, but, how, but once I started asking that question, I saw that patients would open up and say, actually, you know what, it helps to calm me, it helps me with whenever I'm stressed in this way, that's when I go to my sick, or that's when I, that, this is why I feel like I can't let go of cigarettes. And so I feel that when we understand the science now, the, the issue of when we, when we counsel patients about quitting smoking, it's not about that behavior itself, but we have to address the behavior as well as address what's underlying, what's fueling that behavior, what may have happened earlier in their lives that set up that behavior to occur in the first place. Well, we know the rest of the story. After adoption of these health risk behaviors, uh, that can lead to disease, disability, and early death. And if we think about our health care system, our health system as an iceberg, and we put this pyramid on top of it, I would say that we're addressing, the things that we're addressing which are above the surface of the water are preventing death and, and trying to respond to disease after it occurs. But, but what are we doing for all these layers that we don't see? So now, now I'm gonna go to what we can do after I've depressed all for uh, the last 40, 40 minutes. Uh, but I'm here to say you know, there, is, there is good news. There really is. But it's gonna take a lot of work and a lot of commitment and solidarity uh, from people who, who, who this resonates with. And what sort of drives what we know about what works comes from this understanding that, you know, even in this room, so if the original ACE study, there were two-thirds of participants had one ACE or more, in this room, people have had trauma. And I would say it's probably close to 60% of the people in this room have had one ACE or more. And there are 12.5%. About one in eight of the people in this room have had four adverse events or more. But by some measure, if you're in a health profession, you've been successful. So, so obviously not every person who's experienced ACEs, high
high burdens of ACEs are, is doomed to certain negative consequences. So what is it about people who have made it that, that are different from those who succumb or who, who develop these health, health behavioral problems? And the operative word that we know is, is called resilience. And this is kind of a catch-all term, but it's this ability to adapt and succeed, to bend but not break in the face of adversity. Resilience is what helps us to transform what could become toxic stress into tolerable stress. It doesn't mean that the event occurred means nothing, but it means that that event that occurs, while it's a terrible event, while there may be multiple terrible events, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to what we call toxic stress and has that constant pressure and affects brain physiology, function, and development. One way to, to understand the development of resilience is, this is from, from the Center on the Development of Child at Harvard, is to imagine a seesaw. And there are uh, factors that can build resilience, and there are factors that can prohibit resilience from developing. And this is, this is a heuristic, but the idea is that can there, if, if we put enough factors on the positive outcome side, can we tip the scale towards a child developing and building resilience in the face of what may come? And what we know, and this is, a lot of this is driven by sociology and neuroscience um, and psychology, is that the, the game changer in building resilience, the, the single, if there's, a, if there's one thing that you hear from this talk, that the single game changer in building resilience in a child is a strong, stable, consistent, loving relationship with an adult caregiver. And when I saw this, I said, whoo, this is, I was glad, I was glad to see this. I was glad to see that it was not about some drug or some, some fad therapy or some program, but this is the, what this is talking about is the irreplaceable grind of a long-term committed relationship between a loving adult caregiver and that child. What, this, what that teaches a child is safety. What it teaches a child is when bad things happen, someone still loves me. The second thing that's important that builds resilience is developing self-regulation skills. And this, when I first saw this, I, I thought, man, this is kind of, this sounds a little soft, and what does, that, what does that mean? It's not soft. This is actually solidly grounded, solidly anchored in neuroscience. As it turns out, I think that Christians, believers, people who have a faith background actually do this inherently through prayer. Self-regulation means when, when we're activated, when that fear response center is turned on, and, and our rational brains are turned off, that we have a mechanism where we can step back, calm down, and settle our brains. And there are different skills that, that children can, can be taught in the classroom or in the clinic or through counseling, but this is a, this is a, a, a very quickly growing field um, that, again, teaching, teaching children to be able to, when they're activated, to be able to calm down that amygdala uh, to, to quiet down the fear response center. And the third thing is having a meaningful connection with community and faith. Now the negative factors that prohibit resilience from building are, are things that we already talked about, poverty, maltreatment, um, exposure to violence, etc. So again, in summary, the two main things that we know build resilience in a child, one is self-regulation, accessing the brain, parts of the brain that we know can help calm down um, our fear response centers, and then two, having a, a strong, 
social connection, long-term, consistent relationships with the caregiver. Now, this leads me into this topic or, or term called trauma-informed care, which I'm sure um, many of you heard before. And um, I want to unpack this term a little bit. What I think trauma-informed care is, and this is a term I just kind of made up, is, is science, scientific grace. And, and what I mean by that is the, the, the basis of, of extending grace, once you know that it's science, it's not just grounded in our, in our theology, but it's actually grounded from this science. Because the truth about trauma is we don't know who's endured what. Trauma isn't something that, that shows on our skin or that comes out of our mouths the first time we meet somebody. Trauma, we, we, we hide it. And, and what we know about trauma is that people who've experienced trauma paradoxically, but it makes sense, but they paradoxically feel shame about it. Sexual abuse, victims of, of, of rape or sexual abuse tend to feel a lot of shame with that. When a third person, as a third person, you say, why would you feel that was not your fault for that, that event occurring? And so what I think trauma-informed care really is, is, is sort of thinking uh, on a systemic level, identifying that, hey, we need, to, we need to have, we need to show grace to each other and to the people that we care for uh, in, in our clinics. Trauma-informed care, uh, and, and this is a phrase that you'll hear in anybody who talks about trauma-informed care, it's a critical mental pivot away from not what's wrong with you, but what's happening, what's happened to you. Saying what's wrong with you to a person who's experienced trauma and is, is showing you their survival mechanism in the form of heavy drinking or, or chain smoking is the, wrong, is the wrong thing to say for a patient who, who has only heard what's wrong with you their entire life. So it's a critical mental pivot of saying not what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you. And there are a number of key principles in trauma-informed care that, that I want to unpack. Um, and this is from, from SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse Organization. So the first one is building awareness, which we're doing here. Uh, but knowledge is necessary. While it's necessary, it's not sufficient to drive action. But um, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important pro step in the process. The second piece, uh, which I want to sort of dig into a little bit is this idea of promoting safety. Now, um, I just read an article the other day about somebody talking about, you know, we, we have this PC culture in colleges and all these, all these students want to safe spaces. And I, and I think that, that the, the term safe space has been co-opted into, a, it's a politicized term. But safe space actually relates to trauma, what we know about trauma. And because for, for, for people who've experienced and endured trauma in their youth, safety has been, it, it ha safety has not been something they've, they've been able to take for granted. Safety has been um, almost elusive from them. So, and, and the idea behind this too is that patients who, who don't feel safe, uh, or, and I'm, I'm speaking in a healthcare setting, but patients who don't feel safe, um, if, if they'll be less receptive to the services offered or therapies offered. Um, because again, we know that feeling unsafe can activate those fear response centers in the amygdala. And when, when our amygdala is activated, our rational brain is not as activated. And so how can we make smart, thoughtful decisions when, when our fear response centers are activated? So providing safety, developing a space that is safe for all people is, is important in the context of what we understand about trauma. Um, 
prioritizing trustworthiness and transparency. So the idea behind this is that many people who've had ACEs have had broken relationships with the very people they've trusted the most. So it's important that we as uh, care providers are committed to cultivating that trust through being transparent with our thought process, processes and decisions. Uh, client autonomy is super important as well. Again, many people who've experienced ACEs have had their autonomy stripped away from them by the things that have happened to them. So this is a way of giving that power back, uh, uh, upholding client autonomy as a way of giving that power back to our patients uh, who may have been stripped from that uh, through traumatic events. Collaboration, mutuality, and integrating care, very important uh, concepts as well, as well as understanding cultural, historical, and gender issues. But the bottom line in trauma-informed care is that we know that healing happens in relationships. And I think that this was sort of the, the, the it was talked about in my training. It, we talked around it, but I, I was glad to see that, yes, we know, and, and if you're a believer, we know that, that the relationship that we have with, with Christ and our God is, is, is a healing kind of relationship. And this is a way that we can extend and sort of mechanize that, that grace and that love and, and, and that um, unconditional love to the people that we care for in our clinics. There are several levels of interventions that can come out of trauma-informed care and what we know about average childhood experiences. Um, from the policy level down to the individual. And more than that, there's actually different levels of prevention that we can engage in. What I want to talk about is just two things on the interpersonal level, uh, ways that if you're a care provider, things that we can do even today in our clinics. These are universal practices. So the first category is, is having empathic communication. This means being trauma-informed, understanding trauma and its effect on health. Uh, reflective listening, which is the idea of letting the patient tell their story without telling them what their story is first, but when, when, they, when they share what's happening in their lives, you can say in their own words, okay, what I understand is you're saying that this, this happened, this and that happened. You're not saying, well, I think what happened is this. Shared decision-making, again, this is going back to the collaboration and mutuality and client autonomy. Here's what I think we need to do. Let me, let me talk, let me, let me share with you the risks and benefits of this treatment or therapy. What do you think? Let's come to this decision together. These are not concepts that are specific to trauma. I mean, you've probably heard them before, but in the context of what we know about trauma, they're very important things to do um, uh, universally. Enhancing predictability. Again, um, and, and this is, and I, and I put this as a universal practice because again, we never know who, who trauma isn't, isn't it doesn't show on our skin, so we never know who's been exposed or who's not been exposed to trauma, who's endured what in their lives. But I really like these two things of, of setting a collaborative agenda at the beginning of a visit. Okay, uh, here's what, what, what would you like to accomplish in today's visit? Um, so setting the agenda that, that allows a patient to understand, okay, this is what I can expect from today. But the second piece I really like too, and this is an easy strategy of giving an overview of a physical exam. Okay, so here's, so this is uh, what I heard, you know, you've got some abdominal pain, that's been going on for a few days now. Uh, you feel a little nauseous, so we're gonna do the exam. So what I'd like to do, Mr. Smith, 
is doing this animation of your, of your ad set. I'm going to take a listen first, and then if it's okay with you, I'd like to uh, press on your belly to see where exactly this pain is occurring. And this sounds so simple, but imagine if, this, if Mrs. Smith was a survivor of rape or had endured sexual abuse in her youth. And I say, okay, well, you've had some abdominal pain for three days. Can you lay down? And I just, I just pull up her shirt and start listening to her abdomen. That, that would be, that could be triggering and activating for a patient like that if I didn't ask her permission to do that first. And when I thought about it, I realized, oh my goodness, I actually, I don't, I, the way that I give, that I've been giving patients a heads up is to say, I'm going to listen to your belly. I just do it immediately, right? Like as I'm asking, I'm going to listen to your belly. I'm going to press on your belly. And I don't give them permission to say, or to kind of understand and process what's going to happen. So this is a very simple thing that we could do. Again, it's a universal practice. It's not going to prevent trauma. It's not going to fix a person's trauma, but it's a way to avoid activating a person who has experienced AC in their youth. And then building our emotional intelligence. So acknowledging and addressing our biases. The implicit association test is a free test that we can all take. Uh, it's, it's, um, I think it's sponsored by Harvard. And you can take this test and it tests your implicit bias on whatever category. So race, sexuality, uh, gender. And these results are completely private. You don't have to, they don't get published online. They don't keep a record of them. Um, and I would, I would encourage you, if you haven't done it before, to, to, to take one of these tests and see where those biases are. For adults, um, I'm gonna skip this since I'm running out of time. The one question that I feel like is, there, there's been a lot of debate in, in the last five years about should we screen for AC in the clinic? And I won't go into that here. I'm, I'm in that space as well right now and, and I feel conflicted about it. And, and, but people, in general, people want to do something about it, especially in that patient-provider context. And I found, one of my mentors told me, a, a, a simple way to sort of understand where a person is coming from. If you see a behavior that you can't quite understand, that seems self-destructive, but you don't know where it's coming from, you can stop and say, what was it like growing up? How was growing up for you? And I used it the other day when I was talking with a mom who brought her three children in who she, she was, her, her, her children had, um, were diagnosed with ADHD and ODD. They were all the same. They were all exhibiting these, these behaviors. And when, when I was trying to talk to the mom, they, were, they kept interrupting. And they would not let me speak to the mom for more than 10 seconds at a time. And all she kept saying in the visit was, can you do something? They're just crazy. I can't manage them. You know, I, I'm so frustrated and she's, uh, she's, she's cursing in front of them, she's yelling at them, and she's turning and talking to me, and she's turning and talking to another child. I pull her out of the room, we go into another patient's room, or an empty, empty exam room, and we're talking, and at first, I mean, she, her knee's bouncing, she's kind of shaking like this, she's clearly activated. So we try, we try to bring down the energy, and after about 10 minutes, as we're talking, uh, and we're talking about what parenting strategies to use, I, I ask her, how was growing up for you? In that moment right there, I could just see there was a turning point. She, her, her, her countenance changed. She, she relaxed. She actually looked me in the eye, started looking me in the eye, and she said, I was a child that, that nobody liked in my family. I was the one that, I was the black sheep. I was the middle child, 
And my father was really hard on me. My mother hated me. And I don't want to be like that. So that, that was a, a mean breakthrough. But for her, now she's open to the idea of family counseling. Now she's open to receiving therapy. But before that, I was, going, I was getting nowhere. So this is a simple thing that we can do. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you need to do it with every visit, but if you're seeing, if you're seeing a patient who has, and you can't seem to be getting through, and you feel like there might be some trauma in the background, this is a non-offensive question because people can say, "Brought up a spine for me," and you can say, "That's good." And that's the last thing I have. This is my summary slide, and I just want to close with a quote: "It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken ones." Thank you so much. to practice these um, and commit to them on a daily basis. 